The experiment making headlines by the chain Payless Shoes. They held a grand opening of a luxury store with a different name but the same shoes and charged hundreds more for those same shoes. Customers paid. Here's ABC's Kana Whitworth. Behold, Palessi. We built a fake luxury store in Los Angeles and filled it with Payless Shoes. The guests at our grand opening party had no idea. Guests invited to check out what looked like a luxury shoe shop. They're elegant, sophisticated. I just think it's so classy. And I could tell it was made with high quality material. A $35 shoe going for $645, an 1800% markup. Store owners sat on their heels as fashion influencers emptied their wallets. I would pay 400 500 yeah. People are going to be like, oh. Where'd you get those? Those are amazing. Then they're let in on the prank. These are actually from Payless. You've got to be kidding me. Shut up. Are you serious? But those shoppers were refunded their money and they got to keep the shoes. David Payless calling it a provocative social experiment designed to challenge today's image conscious culture. Either way, it was an effective PR stunt. Yeah. David. Clearly a marketing ploy, but they paid. Kana, thank you. Any pay less shoppers in the house? Yeah, it's amazing when people are driven by image consciousness and trying to impress other people the extent they will go to. And what this video clip captured for me was how easily people are deceived from that which is true and real and genuine and convinced of something that's really only worth maybe 35 bucks. Maybe at Payless it might be worth 35 bucks. And they're willing to spend several hundred dollars more. One of the basic life skills that I think is important to cultivate is the ability to distinguish between that which is fake and that which is real. That which is true and that which is false. That which is genuine and that which is not. It comes very personal for me when it comes to Dr. Pepper. Now, I'm no longer an addict. I've been delivered from my addiction to Dr. Pepper. But I still enjoy a nice ice-cold glass of Dr. Pepper. And so when I go to a restaurant and I ask the server, Do you serve Dr. Pepper? And they tell me, Oh, yes, sir. And they bring me a glass and I taste it and I go, This is Mr. Pibb. And so, if you were to stack up all of the imitation Dr. Peppers that are produced around the world, just take a wild guess. How many, how many different imitations of Dr. Pepper are there on the planet? <laughs> I stopped counting at 75. There are dozens and dozens of fake Dr. Peppers. And so you can get Dr. Shasta available at Stater Brothers near you. Uh, it's not bad, but it's not Dr. Pepper. If you really are desperate, you can go to Ralph's or Vaughn's, I think, maybe. This is the Kroger brand, Dr. Dynamite. There's Dr. Thunder, Dr. This, Dr. That, 75 or more. But even more critical in this genuine and real versus the fake and the false is when it comes to the spiritual world you and I are engaged in and spiritual truth. This is what James has been telling us through the first two chapters that we've been exploring together to date. James is concerned that people have a real, true, genuine faith. That they are 
consciously knowledgeable about the reality of their faith. And so we look together at how does a genuine faith respond to testing? How does a real, genuine faith respond in times of trial? How does it respond? Perseveres. It endures. How does the real, genuine faith respond to times of temptation when you're tempted to sin and to operate outside the boundaries of God's will and God's plan during times of testing? James says this is how genuine faith responds. And so, he's developing this theme of understanding. And so what I want you to kind of wrap your heads around this morning is this simple truth. It's really what the book of James is all about and what we've explored in so many different ways in the last, I don't know, seven or eight weeks. A true, genuine faith produces a life with fruitful works. Genuine faith produces a life with productive activity. There's something that follows. Now, I assume that you would agree with me and say, I am a person of faith. But I would ask the question this morning, what kind of faith? There's more than one kind of faith. And we all understand at the very bottom level the basic truth of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so we understand that our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus is apart from the works that we can do, right? But, but Paul goes on in verse 10 and he says, uh, For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For, or because, we are His, what? Workmanship. The Greek word poema. Creative expression, like a poem. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto what? Good works. That He has before ordained that we should walk in them. Before you came to faith, God had a plan for good stuff that was to be a part of your life and my life. Is that kind of mind-blowing or what? And so this morning, James wants us to understand that there are different kinds of faith. There's real, genuine, true faith. But there's also the counterfeit, the fake, the false, the Dr. Dynamite faith. And so I want you to come with me this morning again to the book of James. And this morning we're at the second half of chapter 2. And James opens this section as he does with each of the other pieces we've been looking at with the words, my brethren or my beloved brethren, it's kind of easy to outline this book because he keeps introducing each piece with this brethren thing. And so he says, what use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can this faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead 
being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Jesus or offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And so in this section, James talks about three different kinds of faith. Uh, the first section he talks about what this morning was pretty, pretty clearly identified in those verses as faith that is dead. It is a dead faith. If something is dead, it is lifeless, right? Unresponsive, inactive. Anybody have, ever had your cell phone battery go dead? What use is your phone when the battery goes dead? Paperweight. I tell my daughter when she carries a phone that's not charged, might as well have a brick in your purse. You ever had your car battery go dead? Yeah, several times. Yeah. My wife's whole car died last year. Had it towed away. Done. Useless. Worthless. Gone. Something that is dead has no value and no worth. And so as you look at this section, James is comparing this dead faith to what? What's he comparing dead faith to? A dead body. A corpse. So if you have a corpse, how responsive is that corpse to the music that's being played in the room? What kind of response do you get? Nada. What kind of response do you get from the corpse when you wave a fresh apple fritter under his nose? Nothing. And so James is telling us that there is a kind of faith. It's a, it exists, but it's dead. It doesn't work. In James' words, twice he says it is useless. Just like a dead cell phone. It's useless. And so James is telling us there is a kind of faith, uh, someone who believes perhaps the facts about Jesus, who He is, what He did, Jesus lived, He died. They may even embrace the thought and the truth that He rose from the dead. But is it possible to believe all of those facts and still have a faith that doesn't work? A faith that James answers the question, or he asks the question expecting the answer, can this faith save him? And the answer to that question is what? No. A dead faith cannot save. It is inactive, unresponsive, non-productive. 
that dead faith does not save. And so what James is exhorting his listeners to, and take a step back and remember, these are persecuted believers, right? They have, been, they have fled from family, from home, from jobs, uh, from friends. They fled from Jerusalem. They're refugees. They're in exile. They're experiencing persecution and suffering. And in the midst of all this, James is talking to them about the reality of their faith. Because a true, living, genuine faith produces a life of fruit. And so, I don't want to have a dead faith. I don't know about you. But sadly, sadly, I believe that the churches of America are filled. Maybe that word filled is too strong, but I'll use it anyway. I believe that the churches of America have many, many people in them who have a dead faith. They believe that the faith they have is genuine and real. But the faith that they have is Dr. Dynamite. It's not the real, genuine thing. And so the theme of Scripture... From beginning to end, James, or James ends this section with two illustrations from the Old Testament. And so this isn't just a New Testament concept. But the Scripture is filled with the idea that a true, genuine, living faith produces a life marked with fruitfulness. And so you have verses like, oh, Matthew 5.16. Anyone have Matthew 5.16 memorized? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It's the good works, the good deeds, the fruitfulness of my life that ultimately ought to be giving glory to God, right? That's what Jesus said. Um, Jesus said in John 14, I always kind of marveled at this, He said, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. That's kind of a staggering thought that you and I would have the capability of doing greater works than Jesus. I mean, that that just kind of boggles my mind. But the whole focus is on what is flowing out of my life. Does what flows out of my life demonstrate that my faith is genuine, true, and real? The book of Titus, nine times in three short chapters, highlights this. Paul says to the young pastor Titus, Be an example of good works to your congregation. He says, Exhort your people to be zealous for good works. It's a theme that runs throughout the Scriptures. A faith that is dead is useless, worthless, unproductive, just like a corpse. Have you ever had someone ask you what you'd like to have said at your funeral? I know exactly what I would like someone to say at my funeral. I'd like them to look down at me and go, He's moving! (laughs) Corpses don't move and dead faith doesn't move. James moves on from the dead faith and he talks about what I want to call this morning demonic faith. But he talks about the fact that demons believe. 
And I don't know if he's trying to shock his readers, but that's kind of a shocking thought, isn't it? Demons have faith? Demons believe? Absolutely. And so, and James introduces this section, beginning in verse 18. He says, someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. How, how, can, how can you discern that someone's faith is genuine, real, and true? By what it produces. So if Jessica says to me, well, you know, I play the saxophone. I've been playing saxophone since I was six years old. What would prove to me that this woman is capable of playing the saxophone? Hand her one. And when she starts playing, guess what? Hey, I'm convinced. I'm sold. So Vet tries to tell me, I'm the head track coach at Santa Fe Springs High School. Oh, well, I'm not impressed yet. Prove to me that you're the head coach of the Santa Fe Springs High School track team. How would he do that? He would take me to a track meet and show me, co- show me him coaching his athletes, right? The statement that I'm the head coach of the track team at Santa Fe Springs High School doesn't mean anything until there's proof, there's evidence. And so that's what James is saying. You know, show me your faith without the works, I'll show you my faith with the works. How do you show faith without works? What, what proves that it's real? What proves it's genuine? What, what, what demonstrates that it's the real thing? And, so, and then he goes on and says, uh, the demons believe also. And he says something really fascinating. He says, what is it that the demons believe that he points to? What does your text say? The demons believe what? What does the text say? The demons believe what? God is one. Now, if you were a good Jew, and you read your Old Testament, and you understood the core central scripture of the Pentateuch, the Torah, the central text in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6 is what? Behold Israel, the Lord your God is One. That's a cornerstone of the Jewish faith. And guess who else believes that truth? Demons. I think, I think, I don't know if James was trying to shock them, but I think he shocked them anyway. Have you ever thought about what demons believe? If you were to read through the Gospels and note Jesus' interaction with demons, If you would just pick up your New Testament and start reading through the Gospels and see Jesus interacting with demons, you will observe what the demons believe about Jesus. What do demons believe about Jesus? (laughs) What is that, Steve? He's God. How do you know that? Well, because you read your New Testament and your New Testament has the demons saying to Jesus in Mark chapter 1, Jesus, you are Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God. Four chapters later, in Mark chapter 5, you have the event of Jesus casting the demon out of the possessed maniac dude that's cutting himself in the cemetery. Demon's name is Legion because he's many. 
And the demon says to Jesus, You are the Holy One, the Son of God. And the demon in chapter 1 says to Jesus, Don't torment us. The demon in chapter 5 doesn't want Jesus to send them where? A place of torment. That's why they want to be sent into the herd of pigs. So the demons believe that Jesus is God. They believe in a place of judgment. And they believe that Jesus is the judge who can send them to the place of judgment. How's their theology? Spot on. Right on. But there's a a new ingredient to demonic faith. If the dead faith is simply intellectual agreement to a set of facts, the demonic faith has an added dimension of what? How does their belief that God is one affect them? What do they do? How do they respond? They shudder. Your translation might say tremble. What does trembling and shuddering suggest? Fear. And fear is an emotion. So does the presence of an emotional response indicate genuine faith? Clearly not. And so James says, a genuine, true, living faith produces a life marked by evidence. Works. Dead faith is useless. It doesn't work. A demonic faith, even with an emotional component, still doesn't work. And so he concludes uh, that section about demonic faith. Are you willing to recognize, this is verse 20, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless. And so James has laid out for us two kinds of faith that are not true, not genuine, not real, not effective, not And again, sadly, I think, there are many in the churches in America who have a dead faith, and I think there's many that even have what, just for my sake of description here, a demonic faith. They believe there's even an emotional component, but it's not real. It's not genuine. And so James moves on from the dead faith, the demonic faith, and he talks about what I want to call dynamic faith. Dynamic faith is alive, it's impactful, it makes a difference, it transforms. If I toss a stick of dynamite, wherever I toss it, what's going to happen? Something's going to happen, you know? Um, Kind of the same thing with tossing a grenade, right? Something's going to happen. And so James moves on and he talks about what I I want to call a a dynamic faith. And, And so he calls two witnesses who will demonstrate what real, true, genuine faith looks like. And these two witnesses are extreme opposites in every single way. His first witness is who? Abraham. And if you read down a couple more verses, his second witness is Rahab. Abraham is a man. Rahab is a woman. Abraham is a Jew. Rahab is a Gentile. 
Abraham is a man of wealth, of means, of stature, of position, of significance. Rahab is a woman of low character, a shady lady. The two extreme opposites. And so he begins with Abraham. And he points to one event in Abraham's life. What event is that? What is it? The sacrifice of his son Isaac. And so if you know the story, God has promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I am going to make of you a great nation. I am going to cause your descendants to be more numerous than the sands of the seashore and the stars of the sky. That's a bunch of people, right? So what is it that's necessary to produce hundreds of millions of descendants for Abraham? What is necessary? A son. <laughs> You've got to have a child. And so God says to this man who's older than 90 years, you're going to have a son. And of course, when Sarah was listening in and she heard this, how'd she respond? She laughed. And so God's joke on Sarah is what? Uh, you're going to name your son Isaac. And Isaac means laughter. And so God has promised to Abraham a son. He blesses Abraham and Sarah with a son, Isaac. And this young man grows up. We're not sure how old he is. When you come to Genesis chapter 22, ten chapters later, God says to Abraham, and if you read the chapter in chapter 22, you have to notice carefully. He says to Abraham twice, Take your son, your one and only son, and sacrifice him. And so Abraham loads up the donkey with firewood, loads up Isaac. They must have had some form of ignition, flame or something. And they're off to the mount where Isaac's going to be sacrificed. You know the story, right? Isaac's on the altar, the wood, everything's all set to go, and Isaac has his knife raised, and what happens? God says, stop. Time out. And in the text in Genesis 22, I wish we had time just to spend time in Genesis 22. It's a great chapter. But God says to Abraham, now I know that you fear God. Now, was this, was this a striking moment for God? Did God all of a sudden go, wow, he really believes? I don't think so. But God accommodates himself to human thinking and wisdom and says to Abraham, now I know because of what you've just done that you fear God. Of course, somebody else also knew this now. Who was that? Abraham. You're one and only son. And we could spend time talking about the comparison to God sending His one and only son, right? But what was it about Abraham's life that God could say, now I know that you fear God? What was it? His action. What he did. Taking his son, preparing to sacrifice him. That action that grew out of his faith and trust in God. I believe that Abraham knew that this, this plan of God for him to sacrifice his son, if God's going to fulfill his promise to make my descendants more numerous than the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea, and I need an heir, and this is the heir, what are the two things that might happen when I take my son to sacrifice him? 
either God's going to stop me from sacrificing or He's got to raise him from the dead, right? There are not a lot of options. And the Scripture says it was reckoned to him as righteousness. It was, and that word reckoned in the translation I'm reading, that word reckoned means uh, it's like an accounting term to put something to your account. I give Steve $1,000 and he's going to put it to his account. God says it's reckoned to him as righteousness. Action. Yes, he believed. Yes, he had faith. But what proved it? Action. And so that's what James is saying to his audience who are Jewish refugees suffering persecution. And his first witness, his first illustration is the father of the Jewish nation. But then he goes on and he has this second witness, this second illustration, this woman Rahab. And those men that were with us as we studied through the book of Joshua on Tuesdays earlier this year, you remember the story about Rahab, right? Joshua has crossed over the Jordan River with the people of God, and they're ready to conquer the land. Their first target is what? Jericho, city of Jericho. And so Joshua sends two spies to the city of Jericho to kind of do recon to find out what the spirit, attitude, thinking of the people was. And they go to Rahab's house, and she has to hide them under the, the material that she's working with up on the roof of her house because the leaders of the city have heard that these two guys have come, and they come to her and ask her, you know, where are these guys? We want them. And she says, well, they split. They're gone. They took off. They went that way. And... In the conversation that she has, if you go back to, to Joshua, she basically, I should ask you guys who've been there, but I don't want to embarrass you or me because you don't remember, but <laughs> in the conversation that these two spies have with Rahab, she says to them, we have heard what God has done. We've heard about your experience in Egypt. Ten plagues. Leaving Egypt. We've heard also about crossing the Red Sea. And we've heard about your conquest of the Amorite kings, Og and Sihon. We have heard the stories. Guess what those stories did for her? She says to them, your God is the one true God. The stories that she heard convinced her that the Lord God of Israel was the one true God. She had faith. And so her faith was demonstrated how? She protected the two spies. Her actions, her behavior, demonstrated and proved the reality of her faith. And so, again, that's why I say that true, living, genuine faith produces a life marked with fruitfulness. There's works that... Yes, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the faith that saves is not alone. The faith that saves produces a life of works. And so if you were paying attention last Sunday, Oscar, I'm going to get you in trouble here if no one remembers this, but I, uh, the, the follow-through to Pastor Oscar's sermon last Sunday, he talked to us, about what a changed life looks like. And there's three things that flow out of that changed life in the section of Scripture that we looked at last Sunday. 
The first thing that flows out of a changed life is the way that you talk. And so your speech identifies you as a follower of Jesus or not. The words that you use, the communication that you have with people. The second thing that follows speech is how you treat people. Remember last Sunday we talked about favoritism? And so not only the words of your mouth, your speech, but your service for others demonstrates the reality of your faith. Your speech, your service, and then thirdly, how you live your life. The standards of behavior in your life bear testimony to the genuineness and the reality of your faith. Your speech, your service, and the standards of behavior. That's what demonstrates. That flows out of Pastor Oscar's sermon from last Sunday. And so James is developing this theme. He's saying, well, there's three kinds of faith. You might have a dead faith that's useless, worthless, doesn't save. You might have a demonic faith that even incorporates some emotion, but it's useless. The kind of faith you really need is what? Dynamic faith. It has an impact like a stick of dynamite. That's the kind of faith that you want to have, the kind of faith you need to have. That's the kind of faith that James is pointing them toward. So as I think about James chapter 2 and these three kinds of faith, the question I ask myself, and this isn't the first time I've pondered this, at least I hope you'll understand that in a few minutes, but the question that I've asked through the years of my experience, why is it, There's so many people who claim the name of Christ. Why is it that so many people that claim to be followers of Jesus live lives that are unproductive, unfruitful, and if I can use James' words, useless? Why is it that happens? And you may have uh, thoughts and ideas on that. But I believe that the reason so many people have a dead faith or even a demonic faith is because of the way the contemporary American church has attempted to evangelize people. It goes back to the message that's been communicated. And so... If you were to look at the statistics, uh, Tim helped me look up statistics this week. And uh, the Pew Report, which is a survey that's done periodically, they said that in 2009, there were 233 adults in the United States of America. 77% claimed to be Christians. 2009. In 2019, 256 million adults which my math skills tell me is 166.5 million people. Um, um, or I'm sorry, 65% claim to be Christians, which would be 166 million. So in 2009, it was 77% claimed to be Christians. Now it's dropped 12% in 10 years to 65%. About 166 million people who claim to be Christians. Uh, of course, that bucket of Christians includes all denominations, all the cults that claim to be Christians, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, whoever. And so that, that bucket is a big bucket. Um, but I think there's three things that have happened. 
in the way that we've communicated the gospel. The first thing is the use, or I'm going to call the abuse, of the so-called sinner's prayer. And some of you need to fasten your seatbelt because the next ten minutes is going to be... So, the sinner's prayer that is widely used, has been widely used for over a hundred years, is not in the Bible. Right? All on the same page? Not in the Bible. So, <clears throat> what has happened, and I hear this on the radio all the time and it just drives me nuts. If you want to be a Christian, say these words after me. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know you're the Savior. I believe that you died and rose again. Come into my life. Make me the person you want me to be. Amen. And the immediate response after the person has repeated that is what? Congratulations. Welcome to the family of God. Really? Are we sure about that? What is it that proves he's a part of the family of God? Oh, thank you. Thank you. I was hoping you were paying attention in the last 20 minutes. So... There's several things about the sinner's prayer that bothers me personally. But the idea that someone can say a prayer, be genuine, you have to mean it. You have to really, really, you have to really mean it. And that guarantees that they're saved, right? So here's the problem, one of many problems, I think. So my friend David... His older brother passed away this last year. His older brother apparently made a profession of faith as a young man, child, teenager. But from that point to the point of his passing, no fruit, no evidence, nothing. But my friend Dave says to me, I know he's in heaven because he said the prayer. I said, what, what do you mean? Well, he said the Lord's Prayer, so he's, he's saved. He's in heaven, right? He said the prayer. I don't know how you would answer that. Most people would say, right on. He's good to go. Roy wants to say, hold it, time out. Is your confidence in your relationship with the living God determined by whether or not you said the prayer? Yes or no? No. I experienced this, I have experienced this, I don't want to say hundreds of times, but certainly dozens of times, where a person's confidence about their relationship with Jesus is based on having said the prayer. What should your confidence be in? Jesus! Thank you. That's always a good answer. My trust and faith is in Jesus and what He did on the cross, not in the prayer. And so, I think a lot of people have said the prayer, and they believe now they're in, and sadly, they have a dead or even demonic faith, not a real, genuine, true faith. And we could talk about that some more, but I, I, I think that's part of the challenge in our culture, our Christian culture. We have done a better job of Christianizing people than we had of then we have evangelizing people. Stick with me, those of you who are in total shock. Um, the other challenge we have is how the gospel has been presented in our American culture in the last hundred years. 
I've probably memorized and used four or five different plans of salvation. You've got the evangelism explosion plan. You've got the Roman road. You've got the four spiritual laws. You've got life's most important question. Some of you have been down all those roads with me, right? Most of the presentations that we have been given of how to share the gospel have tended to emphasize the love of God to the exclusion of what, what, what is it that God hates? And what is it that leads us to be people in need of judgment or in a place of judgment? And I've, Some of you have been reading through the Psalms with me this year, I hope. But if you read through the Psalms and just pay attention to this, you'll see it pop up frequently. Uh, early in uh, Psalm 7, I think, Uh, It says, God has indignation every day. Last week I was reading um, Psalm 44. God hates the wicked. So does God love the world and send His Son? Does does God so love the world that He sent His Son? Yes or no? Yes. But what, what, what's God's attitude toward sin and wickedness? He hates it. So where's the balance? Well, that doesn't often happen in some of those plans. Of, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Does God love you? Does He have a wonderful plan for your life? Well, let's back up and think about that for a minute. You no longer live in the United States of America with affluence in Christian churches by the dozens. You now are born and raised in Iraq in the Middle East. God loves you. Is that true? God has a wonderful plan for your life. Is that true? Well, ultimately, but what's, what's life going to be like in the interim? That's a little bit of what James is addressing. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. And so, the way that we've evangelized, with a focus and emphasis on God's love, and to an exclusion of the fact that this is God's attitude towards sin and wickedness and evil, and that there's a coming day of judgment. You know, if you, if you read Acts 17, where Paul's in the, uh, the Acropolis there with all the philosophers, the Stoics, the Epicureans, and... They've got their idols and they've got their their idol to the unknown God. And Paul says to them, I saw your idol to the unknown God. I've come to tell you all about him. We talk about an open door for the gospel. And so what does he tell them about the unknown God? Well, God has looked on your ignorance. He's kind of, you know, your your ignorance, what you don't know, you, you, you don't know. But there's a day coming. Where the unknown God is going to judge the world in righteousness by His Son, Jesus. So, the other thing that's happened in our gospel presentations, you all got your seatbelts on? The other thing that's happened in our gospel presentations is that we have tried to convince people to put their faith in Jesus because they want to go to heaven. It's all about going to heaven. And so one of the early plans of salvation that I learned, uh, you learned this question. What's the question? 
If you were to go to heaven and were stand before God and He were to ask you why He should let you into His heaven, what would you say? So we've tried to convince people about faith in Jesus because of heaven. The other thing we've tried to do is we've tried to convince people to come to Jesus because they have a problem that needs to be solved. You know, Tom is addicted to alcohol, he's a drunkard, he's an alcoholic, but Jesus will save you if you just come to Jesus. Can Jesus deliver Tom from alcoholism? Does Jesus deliver people from alcoholism? Will he do that? Yes, yes, and yes. Did Jesus die on the cross to deliver Tom from alcoholism? Ooh. I'm going to say no. That's not why Jesus went to the cross. So Steve and Jessica are having some challenges in their marriage. Things are not going... I know it's shocking. Um, And Steve comes to me and he says... You know, Jessica's upset. She's angry. She's going to leave me. I don't know what to do. You just need to put your faith in Jesus. He can fix your marriage. He can heal your relationship with your wife. He can make it all better. You need to come to Jesus. Does Jesus fix marriages? Yes. Can He fix marriages? Will He fix marriages? Yes, yes, yes. Did Jesus... Driving the cameraman crazy. Hang in there, Mark. Did Jesus die on the cross to fix Steve and Jessica's marriage? No. So Dave struggles with depression all the time. And what he really needs in his life is peace and stability and calmness. Dave, if you just come to Jesus, He will give you peace. He'll give you stability. Will Jesus do that? Can Jesus do that? Does Jesus do that? Yes, he did not die on the cross to give Dave peace and stability in his life. So back up one more step. Why did Jesus die? If he didn't die to get you to heaven, he didn't die to fix your alcoholism, your addiction, your marriage, your need for peace, why did Jesus die on the cross? So, If you read your Bible, your condition before coming to faith in Jesus is described with words like hostile, enemy, stranger to the covenant, sinner. And because you are a hostile, alien, wicked sinner... What do you need to happen in your life in relationship to the Creator God, the Ruler of the universe, who created you and gave you life, your Heavenly Father, and you are estranged from Him, you are a sinner, you are uh, hostile. What do you need? Ah, Steve, you nailed it, my friend. Now say it loud enough so somebody else can hear it. Reconciliation. You need to be reconciled to God. What does that mean? Anybody got a checkbook with you this morning? Anybody ever learn how to reconcile a checkbook? What is the point of reconciling your checkbook? 
You have a number in your checkbook that says you have $2,000.85 in your checking account. And the bank says you have $15,000 in your checking account. And you're not happy. What do you need to do? Go ahead. You need to reconcile those numbers and bring them into harmony. That might mean going to the bank, yes. But you need to bring... Are, are any of you like my wife? Don't tell her I'm going to tell this story. But my wife will labor for hours. Hours. Because our checkbook number that she has is two cents different than the bank. Your wife do the same thing. I see you pointing at Susan. And so my wife will labor for hours to get those numbers to agree. And sometimes it takes days. And she keeps telling me, this still doesn't agree. I still don't know what the right number is. It drives her nuts. You know what I would do? Two cents to the count, match with the bank, done. <laughs> Twenty seconds out of my life is over. But... What we need spiritually is we need to be reconciled to God. We need to be brought into harmony with Him. And so, you have passages like... Oh, my. So this is Colossians 1. If you're taking notes, you might want to take a look at this. Have, have I totally shocked some of you? You're kind of... You just now started breathing again? Or you're still not breathing? Colossians 1, 19 to 23... It was the Father's good pleasure. <laughs> you think about what gives God joy, what gives God pleasure. He says, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, that Jesus would have the fullness of deity, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth, things in heaven, um, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind... Engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. The lost were enemies, hostile, alienated. That's you and me before Christ, right? And Paul says Jesus came, the fullness of deity... To die on the cross, yes, to pay for sin, and what was the goal? Reconciliation. Oh, thank you. God's goal was to bring us into harmony with Him. Paul says again, Romans 5, verses 6 to 11. While we were still helpless. That's like a dead person, right? Paul says in Ephesians 2, we're dead in our... In, you know, dead in our sins. He says we're helpless. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Jesus left the glories of heaven to come to this planet, 
to seek and save the lost, to bring us into harmony with our Heavenly Father, to bring us reconciliation. That's why Jesus died. Does He fix marriages when people come to faith? Does He help people with their addictions when people come to faith? Does He help people that struggle with depression and other stuff? Yes. But that's not why Jesus died. He died to reconcile us to the Father. One more verse. 2 Corinthians 5, 17-19 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, all things have come. Uh, now all these things... Uh, got to, uh, behold, new things, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself. So we have this new life. We're a new creation. What is it that made you a new creature? Reconciliation. Brought into harmony with God. Um, He has reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. Not counting their trespasses against them. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And so, for those who have been reconciled to God, God now entrusts to us the ministry of helping other people come into harmony with God. You've heard Pastor Oscar say for eight months, we're here to help people find and follow Jesus, right? We want people to find Jesus. Why? They need to be reconciled to their Heavenly Father. They need to be brought into harmony. They were enemies. They were hostile. They brought shame and dishonor on their Heavenly Father. And now we come into harmony with our Heavenly Father to give Him honor, to give Him glory, to give Him praise. How do we do that? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. I could talk some more about it. I said plenty. So, got faith? What kind? Hopefully you've got a dynamic faith, not a dead faith. What is it that demonstrates that you have a dynamic faith? The way you live your life. The actions that flow out of your life. And I use three S words to help me remember that. Your speech, your service, your standards of behavior. A life of true, living, genuine faith produces a life marked by productive fruitfulness. Back in the 1970s, one of our very popular uh, musicians, a woman by the name of Donna Summer, she was called the Queen of Disco. Any disco fans still surviving from the 70s? Got a disco ball in your den at home? Donna Summer was an incredibly popular uh, musician, songwriter, and Word began to spread that Donna Summer had become a Christian. And, of course, people in the church, whenever some celebrity comes to faith, they get all excited, jump up and down, want autographs, and go crazy. But Donna Summer was interviewed by one of our national uh, TV channels. On they, and they said to her, Donna, we understand that you've become a Christian. Is this true? And she said, yes, it's true. I have become a Christian, but it's not going to change the way I live my life. Sadly, I think 
I fear that too many people have never said that or thought that, but if you were to take a look at their life post saying the sinner's prayer, you would take a look and say, well, it hasn't changed their life at all. James says that's dead faith. That's demonic faith. What you and I need in our lives is dynamic faith, and we need to be sharing that dynamic faith with others. So, Lord, I pray that you would just kind of erase all the stuff I've said, if it's wrong or incorrect or hurtful. I pray that you would use and apply that which is significant, meaningful, important. Remind us afresh in the midst of this conversation this morning that you are the eternal, unchanging God. You love us with an everlasting love. We're so grateful to be a part of your family. You've brought us into your family. You've adopted us as your children. You have reconciled us through the cross of Jesus. And we can stand today forgiven, cleansed. And Lord, make us mindful that that which demonstrates the genuineness of our faith isn't the words of our lips. It's the actions of our life. Might we be men and women whose speech, whose service, whose standards demonstrate every day to a lost world that we truly know and follow the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Lord, help us with that dynamite, dynamic faith to make a difference, to make an impact in the hearts and lives of others around us. Is our prayer together in Jesus' name. Amen.